friends, and welcome to Bold Mercies with Heather Johnson. I am so glad that you have decided to join us, to come and listen to some faith-building stories. God's bold mercies in our lives help us live out our stories with boldness. Amanda Cornelius is a mental health counselor who brings her specialty and expertise to us today. We talk about her path into counseling, the things she finds herself repeating the most with clients, and she even touches on social media, offering us a tip I had never heard before. So join us. Thanks, Amanda, for joining us today. I am so glad that you are here with us today on Bold Mercies. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So can you just start today by telling us a little bit about how you got into counseling? Yeah, well, it wasn't a straight line. I took a windy road here. Um, I, I was a business major. Actually, I was international business major, and I thought for sure I was going to, I don't know, become a diplomat or something like that, or work for a big corporation. And long story short, I ended up working at the University of Minnesota in their study abroad department, because as an international business major, I'd studied abroad a lot. So when I graduated, I was like, that's the only thing I really know how to do is study abroad. So Mm -hmm. I was working there and a few people saw me with the students and they said, you know, I think you you would be a good counselor. And I didn't even really know what that was. I, I had never really heard of mental health counselors. I think you know, 20 years ago, it was, they were a little bit more stigmatized than they are today, even I would say Mm -hmm. there weren't nearly as many even. Mm -hmm. So I took some classes at the U of M mainly because I am a banker's daughter. And if things are free, you should utilize them. And so I I took (laughs) good life lessons learned. That's right. Thank you, Al Johnson. So um, (laughs) I took a bunch of classes there really liked them. I loved the I loved the world of psychology. And in my undergrad work, I didn't even take a single psych class. I mean, I I knew nothing. So I took a bunch of classes there. I had a Christian professor there who recommended that I look into a Christian graduate program. He said, you're really going to like the integration of of faith in your learning. And I, I kind of joked with him like, yeah, I already know that's what my entire undergrad was. I, I went to a Christian undergrad. So did that and didn't realize how long the road would be. It was about nine years later that I was fully licensed and working in the field. It's a, it's a long road to become a licensed wow. uh, clinical counselor because of all the hours and whatnot. But that, that was kind of how I, how I got there. It was just kind of like following one little open door after another and along the way, seeing how much I, I enjoyed it. I loved the one-on-one work with people. What do you think your friends saw in you when they when they suggested, you know, you'd make a great counselor? What do you <laughs> well, think they saw in that, you? That- yeah, good question, because back when I was 22, I, maybe it was because I was bossy. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, I but you would think that of, would go with like, yeah, I don't know, like leadership yeah. of a our good, CEO. Yeah. But. <laughs> no, I think truly, I think it was because, you know, I was doing some one-on-one work with students as a study abroad advisor. And I, I think that they heard me and they saw me talk with students and they saw that I had a heart for them. I mean, now I look back and I'm like, it's like it, they saw love, right? They saw genuine care and love for students mm-hmm. and for people. And and when I worked at the U of M, they, I don't think I worked with any, I think there's one or two other Christians there. 
And so what they were seeing in me, I think for them probably felt really unique. And and even when I did my undergrad work, I was often in roles, you know, I was captain of whatever and leader of whatever. I was often in roles where I was kind of counseling or advising in some way. And I don't know if it was always out of love so much as it maybe was out of I liked to be in charge and I liked to help people. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but as I got older, I think it it morphed more into just, I, I genuinely cared a lot about people and wanting them to, to be well. I think that's maybe what they saw. Right. And maybe right. I also could really fake that I had answers. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you really had good answers. I don't know. <laughs> maybe it wasn't faking know. at all. It really yeah. was good answers that you presented. I love that people saw that and called that out yeah. in you yeah. and something that you hadn't. I mean, it was a little bit stigmatized, but I think it was also just not I mean, of our generation, it just wasn't utilized. It just wasn't used as much. I am so thankful for mental health counselors in my own life and in other people and other family members' lives as well. And so I'm just super thankful for what we get to hear from you today. I had this thought in my mind as I was thinking about counselors, and it it just arose in my mind, you know, the word, when we read the word, it talks about the Holy Spirit as our counselor and that, that Jesus is the great counselor. And so in what ways do you see the image of God reflected in your work and in your mission as a counselor? Because for sure, you you are like being the hands and feet of Jesus in people's lives. And so in what ways do you really see that image of mm. God portrayed in your work and in your mission? Gosh, so many ways. Big picture. There's always this theme or this presence when you're when you're sitting with one person in their pain and they're kind of trusting you, right? There's, there's always this theme or this presence of, I I don't know what else to call it, but, but love and Mm. love from me to my client. And, and often the other way too. I think a lot of my clients, you know, they joke about having girl crushes or whatnot on me. And I think it's because they, they get to be with somebody who isn't judging them in any way and is totally for them. And oftentimes they're sharing things they've never shared with anyone. And then they do it and they experience healing and and freedom. And they attribute that often to, to the counselor, but really it was just kind of the dynamic or the environment in which they express these things. You know, when you, when you can do something like share a trauma or a, a big secret you've been carrying in a relationship where there's no judgment and there's just kind of openness and empathy then mm. healing can take place. And then people really feel set free from the thing. And so when I think of big picture, like when you pan out from the gospel, I mean, isn't that the message of the gospel, right? Like, yes. stop carrying this stuff. Let me carry it, you know, and doing it in a way that is compassionate and filled with grace. I think big picture, that's always been something I've been aware of. On kind of a a smaller scale, you know, I used to teach a a class called Ethics and Professional Issues at Bethel University, which is a a local Christian college here in in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I I wanted to make sure every student knew was kind of our, our six guiding ethical principles that we use. And if you can memorize these principles, then you have something to hang on to in the heat of the moment when you have to make a really quick 
terribly, you know, difficult ethical decision. And when I think of these ethical principles, to me, it feels very much like how God is with us or kind of how the, how the Bible talks about who Jesus was. And, and it's things like do no harm. So non-maleficence and it's things like beneficence. Like, in fact, don't just not do harm, also do good. So it's about removing barriers to people's lives, promoting health. Like, let's just not take away the hard thing. Let's also add goodness into their life. And it's other other values like or virtues like justice and fidelity or being loyal and faithful and keeping your commitments that you're making to clients, you know, mm-hmm. and, and how to treat your clients and how to make good decisions. I, I see these virtues really aligning quite well with, with Christianity and with what the Bible says about how to live. One thing that really stuck out to me about what you said is not only do no harm, but do good. And isn't that what Christ's unconditional love looks like in our life, that he redeems us when we are dead in our sin? And unconditional love for him, for God, doesn't mean that he's just going to leave us there like redeemed, but he's actually committed to making us a different person, mm-hmm. to sanctifying us into purifying us and making us into his image. When you say you pan out and look at the gospel, I just see that so clearly. And and that's really just the gospel work of what Jesus does in our life as well. Right. Right. And that's what makes it so fun to be a Christian counselor is it's never just about like, you know, let's, let's talk about your trauma. Let's talk about the hard thing. It's also about Gosh, also don't forget there's freedom and healing that we're we're looking toward that. Mm. And it's bigger and better than you ever imagined. You know, that I just love that. Do you see mostly most of the clients that you see, are they mostly Christian clients? I mean, yeah. I know you would see anybody, but what are the mm-hmm. people that are coming to see see you and your clientele? And how are you able to integrate faith in your workplace there as a counselor? Yeah, well, I would say, you know, I I own a group practice. There's about 12 of us. And the majority of us see, I would say, 80% or more people who are Christians who want the faith integration. That being said, I have atheist clients. I have Buddhist clients. I have clients who were raised Lutheran and then decided they they don't know what they are, but they're definitely not Lutheran. Um, Mm. But we will see anybody. And I I love working with my atheist clients and my Buddhist clients. I love them. I I love the way they think. And I love the often kind kind of curvy road that got them where they are. And as long as we both are really transparent and honest about our worldviews and no one's trying to convert anybody, I think it can mm-hmm. be really effective and, and really powerful as, a, as points of connection and as a ways to challenge each other. And I remember one time talking with one of my Buddhist clients about, we were talking about radical acceptance and self-compassion and whatnot. And I said to him, you know, in Christianity, there's this thing called grace and it's critically important to our faith development and and kind of foundation of our faith. And he was really interested in that because Buddhism, he he thought didn't have anything like that. And I, and I said, you know, compared to a lot of the world religions, grace is what makes Christianity different. It's not just Buddhism. And, and so he loved the concepts of that. In fact, he wanted to adopt some of it in his own in his own practices and his practice. Like, right. Yeah. I love how you see the work of the gospel in, in your practice. And so you have told me that your niche within the counseling world is really identity development. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? What does that look like and what does that mean? I don't know if I invented that word. I mean, maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's like a marketing lingo I've heard elsewhere, but I started using that language 
when I realized a few years into my practice that, you know, I was seeing primarily young women, the first five to seven years of my practice, I was working at a Christian university nearby downtown Minneapolis. So part of why it became my niche is because developmentally, you know, according to Eric Erickson, that's when we're doing the identity formation work. And it wasn't really until a couple years later, I also started seeing, man, the, the 30, the 40, the 50 year old women that I'm working with are needing the same thing. Hmm. I think we all are carrying around like a, a heart question of who am I? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be able to help people answer that question. And it wasn't too far into that into that work that I realized I, I, I love helping people, you know, take the strengths finder or do the Enneagram or do a Myers-Briggs or something like that and to kind of start to learn really who are you? What 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 makes you tick? What are you into? What are your preferences? Those things really are important for identity work. It, it matters that you can state how you like to eat your eggs. You know, those kinds of things matter. And it also really, really matters that you understand who you are in context of whose you are, right? So mm-hmm. as you're doing those assessments and learning about your preferences and learning about what how you're wired, if it's not kind of supported or cradled in this understanding of you are a child of God and you're made in his image and you actually belong to him, you don't belong to yourself. And here's why that matters. And here's the difference that that makes. And, and it opens the floodgates for healing and for freedom that, that you don't have to atone for your for your wrongdoings. I mean, this is what gets me really jazzed about it is because we can go into this self-exploration and we can do all this navel gazing and be like, oh, I'm so interesting, right? And sometimes we are very interesting. Mm-hmm. And then we start to learn about God because you can't talk about who you are without also exploring and understanding whose you are. How does knowing as we know whose we are, what ways do you see that really impacting and influencing who we are in our identity mm-hmm. development? Mm-hmm. Well, I could talk about this for an hour. How much time do we have? Okay. So, <laughs> you got time, girl. Okay, good. So when we dig into who we are, every single time, I would say within the first three to six sessions, what bubbles up, what we, what we start to see very early on is shame. And I go to Brene Brown as my core shame researcher here. She has helped us see that shame isn't felt like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling shame. I'm in shame. Hmm. Shame is experienced as an internal dialogue, an internal narrative that sounds like two different scripts. The first one being, you're not enough, right? So, so you're, hmm. you're, you're not pretty enough. You're not thin enough, you're not tan enough, you're not smart enough, whatever it might be, but you're not enough. And mm-hmm. then if you do enough therapy, you, then the next tape kicks in, the next script turns on. And that script is a little more cryptic. And you've maybe heard it referred to as imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. It sounds mm-hmm. like, who do you think you are? So who, so who do you think you are to call that friend to go out to coffee? You, she's not going to like you. Who, who do you think you are to lead that group? You, you're, you, you're not trained in that. Who do you think you are to step out on a limb? People think people are going to think you're weird, right? So this script of like, who do you think you are turns on. And those are the tapes of shame. And mm. a lot of times people, when, when we hit this, when we're unpacking kind of who you are and we understand the cognitive side that's that's at work to kind of make you feel like crap about yourself, people don't know what to do with that then. Because those two tapes of shame have created in us, because everybody has them in one capacity or another 
have created in us a feeling of disconnection, a feeling of not having value and a feeling of unworthiness. Hmm. And so then it's so freeing to be able to point to the Bible to say, boy, it's already been written. It's already been written about how much value you have. It's already been written about whether you have worth or belonging, whether or not you should be here, whether or not you're enough, right? Because when you think of who you are through the lens of Jesus, like you're done, you're enough, you don't have, mm. you're good, you're good to go. Mm-hmm. And so there's such overlap between the between the identity work of who am I, what am I about, and then how we always end up noticing that there's shame really kind of driving the bus, mm-hmm. and then what God has to say about our shame. Such good news. Oh, it's such good news. And really, it when you're talking about shame, these are really Satan's big lies, right? Oh, totally. That he's but, yeah. wanting us to buy into. And when he can replay that enough in our minds, then we believe it. Totally. And I feel like, you know, I'll joke with my supervisees, my supervisees all the time. I'll say, you are a heart surgeon and a brain surgeon. You just don't use any scalpels. When we get into these narratives, they feel so, they're, they're, they're cognitive and they're, they're spiritual, their heart, their soul messages of how the devil can get in there and really make you believe these things about yourself. And it feels like, it feels like inception. It feels like it came from you, you know, like yes. it must be true but it's not, it's not true. And it feels so holy when we're in there doing that work because it's so clearly evil. They didn't Mm. just magically appear. No, right. They're very, they're very much present because Satan has lied to us from the beginning Mm -hmm. because he Uh is a liar and he is deceptive. I like what you illuminated that, you know, unless we have trained ourselves to recognize and know that these are Satan's lies, we will Mm -hmm. think that they are just from ourselves and that it must be true because we have said that. Yeah. Well, I'm just over here taking my notes and learning from you. So, so thank you. Thank you so much. What do you find that you kind of repeat most often in your counseling sessions? Like what, what is kind of like your running themes that you feel like Mm -hmm. in today's world and today's generation that you are repeating most often? I think that for sure, the, the shame, you know, like, uh, I try not to introduce it too early on because it can freak some people out. You know, on session one, if you're like, let's talk about your shame, they're not going like, to want to oh, come back. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're like, I'm not yeah. ready. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not ready for that. You're, like, you're freaking me out. So what I try to do is I, I talk about kind of coming through the back door where I'll say things like, you know, do you ever notice how you, you're comparing yourself a lot or you, you feel like you're not enough or you know, if, if you kind of beat that voice down, do you, do you ever feel kind of like you're overreaching? Like, who do you think you are? You know, that kind of narrative. And typically they can relate to that. And I'll say, okay, do, do you know that that's actually shame? Before Brene Brown, the researchers called shame the master emotion, meaning when it shows up, it is driving the bus. There's, there's really mm. not much else you can feel when shame shows up. Right. And it's so cryptic. Like when you're sad, you can say, I feel sad. But when you're in shame, it's really difficult to say, I am feeling shame because right. it's so it's so masterful. It's so big and powerful. So a lot of times, I would say every single client who leaves my office, if you've had more than 20 sessions with me, we have talked about shame. We've talked about recognizing what it is. We've talked about understanding its triggers and learning how at the end of the day, really just how to be resilient when you're in it. It is not about 
getting rid of it because until mm, we are with our, yeah, it's until you're back with your maker, you're going to have shame. So it's more about when it comes up and hopefully it'd be fewer and far between over time. But when it comes up, it's about practicing the resiliency skills. And if this mm. is, if you're listening to this and you're loving this, definitely go read Daring Greatly or Rising Strong by Brene Brown. It teaches you how to do this. It kind of walks you through the actual steps. There's kind of four main elements of shame resiliency. And you just got to work the steps every time. You don't have to get fancy. You just work the steps. And it's things like reaching out, telling somebody what's going on. It's about not being silent in it. And it's mm-hmm. things like reality checking it. Okay, what does the data tell me? What does one of my friends and family tell me who love me? So for sure, shame. I always talk about shame. Lately, I've been talking a lot about what I would just call self-compassion, learning how to recognize these kind of mean girl voices in your head. A lot of times my clients come in to see me and they they think all their thoughts are facts. Every thought I have is truth. And so through things like mindfulness or meditation, I'll really slow down their thinking so they can see, oh my goodness, not, not all my thoughts are facts. Well, then which ones are? How do I know what to believe, right? And so it's learning how to see the thought patterns that we get into. And in the midst of that, practicing self-compassion, offering ourselves grace for being messy, right? You know, for for being curious about ourselves and not knowing really what what we think or feel until we've explored it and kind of gotten curious about it. So so Mm. self-compassion, mindfulness, like I mentioned, I I do that probably with nine out of 10 clients. I'm doing some form of mindfulness because most people just experience their inner world as if it's all just totally true. And we need to be critical thinkers about our inner world, be able to gauge what's rational, irrational, helpful, not helpful, healthy, unhealthy, that kind of thing. As you are talking about all these things, what jumps up first in my mind is social media, (laughs) that we are women who are like on our Instagram and on our Facebook. And I'm not speaking out against it because I actually am really frequent user of Instagram and mm-hmm. Facebook. I'm sure you're having this conversation and how can we as how can we as women just kind of see those triggers that social media presents in our lives and mm-hmm. how how do you kind of walk with women through that piece yeah. of it? Oh, it's such a good question because social media, particularly I would say Instagram, what is it? And maybe it's all the imagery more than Yeah, maybe you know, it's, it's the imagery or the words. Yeah, these quick images. If we aren't able to engage with I'm just gonna pick on Instagram and I do love me some Instagram, so don't get me wrong. <laughs> yeah. And it can be soul sucking because when you're engaging with Instagram, you're having a, a interesting kind of neurological thing happen where you're simultaneously Simultaneously taking in information and kind of putting out information. So we call input output. So it's like, I'm absorbing all this stuff in me. Oh my gosh, she looks this way, or she has this thing, or she went on that trip, or he did that. Oh, no. And I'm interacting with it. So I'm commenting, or I'm liking it, or I'm thinking, how do I fit into this? There's this participation Mm. element. And when you're kind of doing both things there, it's really hard to be mindful and to be a critical thinker. So what I tell my clients often is, you know, just do a little experiment with yourself. Maybe look at one person's feed for a few minutes and notice what's happening in your body. A lot of times with whether it be anxiety or shame or stress or or low self-esteem or whatever, your body will tell you first. 
And so if your heart races, or if you feel a pit in your stomach, or if you feel suddenly more uncomfortable in your skin, those are little indicators that it might be something you're consuming, right? Something coming, some input that something you're allowing in. Mm. And then I would also add being mindful of your thinking. Like when I read, when I read Jen Hatmaker's posts, Mm -hmm. rarely do I feel worse about myself because she's really, really honest. She puts out really shiny, beautiful things and really hard things. She has kind of a nice balance. And so I don't have a hard time following her. There's other people who I won't name. (laughs) that I um, (laughs) Keep those unknown. (laughs) I've had to unfollow them because either their stuff is too shiny or it's I know it feels too fake. And so when you're mindful and you recognize what's going on in your heart, in your body, and in your mind, then you can start deciding, is this good for me or not? Do I feel better yes. or worse after I, after I consume this? The other thing I suggest to almost all my clients who are on social media is limit it. And you can set mm-hmm. a limit on your phone and it kicks you off. With these things that are highly addictive, like Instagram, sometimes you can't be trusted. And so to have a behavioral intervention, like setting a limit on your phone for screen time or for social media can be really effective because then the limit dings and you have to have a little come to Jesus moment when you're like (laughs) 60 minutes already. I know you're like, how in the world did that time just fly by? And then you have to click okay, or maybe just one more minute, you know, and you have to to own your behavior. You know, we're all going to be hearing your voice now also in the back as we've (laughs) all are going to be setting this time limit on our phones. And now we're going to, it's going to ding, but we're going to hear Amanda say, click okay, or one more minute. We're going to be like, no, she said (laughs) click okay and move on. Yeah. (laughs) I love what you said. I've actually never heard this suggestion, this advice to just do something different with Instagram and just look at one person's feed and see, you know, see how your body reacts and how your thoughts are, where your thoughts are. And that I've never heard that before, but that is very cool. You always remember, kind of try to remember not to mindlessly scroll, but unless you have something to replace that with, it always goes back to mindlessly scrolling. And that's why I also love some of the trends I'm seeing in this like Instagram therapists. We actually just started an Instagram page for this reason that we wanted more kind of interjections into people's Instagram scrolling. And so if you follow a handful of Instagram therapists or even the Calm app, they have a great Instagram page. It kind of, it creates like a, a little blip like, oh, oh, yeah, I forgot I'm supposed to take a breath or I've seen Calm have uh, pages that show up or posts that show up that just say, stop scrolling, breathe. Mm. Yeah. You know, and I, I love that I'm seeing more and more of that on Instagram. That is super helpful. I appreciate also that you, that your group was able to say, hey, let's also like redeem this a yes. little bit as well. Like let's interject some good into this as right. well. See what we right. can do since people are just going to be on Instagram. Yeah. I mean, there's just no way to remove it. So right. <laughs> let's see if we can interject some good there. Right. I would love to hear kind of your five minutes of gold. Like if mm. you were sitting down with a friend for coffee and you just wanted to offer them five minutes of gold, like your mm. best advice for this mm. world that we are living in currently, what would it sound like? What would that be? Yeah. Well, definitely, you know, if I only had five minutes and I knew that this this girlfriend wasn't going to get up and leave, I would first talk about shame. 
<laughs> but um, you know, to make since sure you said yeah, you don't want to start there, you know, okay, she's not yeah. going to get up and leave. So you would first talk about shame. Yeah, yeah. So an easy introduction, right? Like a soft opening. So we'll talk about shame first. I really want women to know how cryptic shame is and men too, but I work primarily with women. But if we don't understand the sneaky voice of Satan, right? And we, and we can't call it what it is. We carry it like it's truth. And I just want women to recognize that these are lies and we need, the sooner we recognize that, the better. So I'd first talk about the two tapes of shame, right? The you're not enough and who do you think you are and and call it what it is. It's not truth. It's shame. Mm-hmm. And then I'd probably I'd probably spend some time talking about cognitive therapy. I mean, the, the longer I do this, the more I'm really diving into an interest in, in, in cognitive therapy, because I think the way that we think, the patterns of our thinking, how we think really impacts quality of life. So things like, you know, there's another researcher that I love named Dr. Amen, who also happens to be a Christian. And he, he studied for a bit this concept of what he calls ants automatic negative thoughts Mm -hmm. and how we all tend to do one of nine patterns and they're patterns like mind reading. So when I'm in a situation and I am unsure of exactly what's going on, I will fall into this pattern of mind reading. Like he thinks I'm an idiot. He thinks that he thinks that what I just did was wrong. And meanwhile, that guy is, he said nothing. He's just looking at us with his, you know, kind of blank face and we are projecting all this stuff onto him. Or things like uh, another ant or automatic negative thought pattern is thinking with your feelings. So this is when I see a lot where, where a person will be really, really sad or feeling really, really lonely. And then it's like they become a hoarder of all data and information that only supports that emotion. So when I am sad, I gather all the information or all storylines that only augment my sadness. Hmm. It's really hard for me to start reality checking it and thinking about data points that don't fit because I'm Hmm. thinking with my feelings. Uh, Or another ant that I hear a lot of is what I call shooting on yourself, which is uh, beating yourself up. I should have known better. Yeah, guilty. Like, how could I have done that? Why did I? Oh, I was such an idiot. And just kind of stewing and staying in that space. And the sooner we can recognize these automatic negative thought patterns for what they are. They are just a habit of the brain. They are not truth. They're just a thought pattern. Then the earlier I can introduce a way out. So if I can say, okay, Amanda, mm-hmm. you're, you're mind reading right now. You, you don't, you're not actually a mind reader. You're just in the mind reading habit right now. What mm-hmm. would it sound like for you to check that? Well, if I'm, if I'm wondering what that guy's thinking and I'm putting stuff in his mind as if I know, I guess I should probably ask him what he's thinking <laughs> rather yes, than right. be a mind reader, right? So that cognitive side of therapy, I've been, I've been using a lot more. Yeah, I like ahead. what you said too, if you can recognize it and then kind of steer it the other direction, right mm-hmm. away, it's so much better because you will downwards, like as you're saying these things, I can picture myself in several of these situations and you're downward spiraling. And before you know it, you're like, almost drowning and unable to get yourself back out of those waters. And you don't even know how you got there. I mean, that's that's what's so screwy about it, right? You're like, how do I get out of here? I don't even know how I got here. (laughs) Right, right. But when you can, when you start recognizing them, then you can, 
see it for what it is and get your, you know, turn that boat around Mm -hmm. before your ship is sinking Mm -hmm. (laughs) deep in the waters. Wow. This is all so good. I just know for myself, but I think also for all of our listeners, we're going to be like, wow, we actually needed more of you. (laughs) We needed some more time. We need more of this. So this has just been fabulous. And I end every podcast by asking, what is one thing right now that is making you happy? Stand-up comedy. I wow. Yeah, I have been watching stand-up comedy on Netflix. And like some of them are terrible. I can't recommend them. But man, it feels so good. And I I'm an easy laugh. Like it doesn't take a lot to get me to like belly laugh. But there's some like I've been crying. I've been like wheezy at the end of some. So so good. (laughs) If you all haven't watched Nate Bergazzi, The Tennessee Kid on Netflix, it's one of the best ones out there right now. So my husband and I will turn it on, you know, probably three or four times a week and watch like a 30 minute stand up. And it's just like, it's the best. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And yeah. I just wrote down that recommendation because that is so good. And we love to laugh. And good. sometimes in today's world, you just, there's just not as many things to laugh about. So it's yeah. good to have something. Right. And I was going to ask you, do you have a recommendation? And so I'm glad yeah. you could just throw one out there and give us oh, yeah. all a recommendation. Yeah. Ten- the Tennessee <laughs> kid. Okay. Tennessee kid. And then my other one that was so good. I'm a huge fan of improv. So middle ditch and Schwartz, they have an improv for uh, four series on Netflix. My favorite one was the first one. I think it's called the wedding. It's hilarious and it's just a good like check out a life for an hour and laugh. It's the best. Yeah. Oh, Mm -hmm. I love it. That's really great. Well, Amanda, thank you for being on the podcast today. I have absolutely loved everything I've heard. I'm not kidding. I've taken two pages of notes (laughs) and I'm going to be going back and reviewing this. And so thank you so, so much. Uh, Thank you, Heather. It was my pleasure. So fun. Thank you for joining us today on Bold Mercies. Subscribe to Bold Mercies podcast. I'd also love to hear from you at heatherjjohnson.com.